0: Hello and welcome to the podcast what is the future of education your host today will be Elizabeth Cook who is a senior analyst of strategy and performance at Edith Cowan University in Australia she is also postgraduate researcher on the program Higher Education Research, Evaluation and Enhancement with Lancaster University. Her PhD is developing a relational employability approach for universities.
1: Today I'm excited to talk with Professor Kerry Facer from the University of Bristol in the UK. Welcome Kerry and thank you for joining us. Great to be here. I'm very interested to learn about your research, particularly as I see connections not only with podcasts, but also with my own doctoral research. To begin, could you please introduce yourself and describe the work that you do? Yeah,
0: it's great to, great to be here, Elizabeth, and nice to talk to you. So I've spent uh, about 20 years working on the relationship between education and futures in various different ways. I started off as a researcher studying education and technological change, so my first research was really in the late 1990s, looking at the introduction of technology into homes. So, sitting in kids' bedrooms and talking to them about what this new tech meant for them, and thinking about the implications of the internet in particular for education. After that, I moved to a new startup, uh, an independent research lab called Future Lab, where we we're trying to bring together education technologists, researchers, creative digital media specialists, and others to think about how we might develop new techs to support learning. Um, and because I was working on technology, what happened at that point, and because I was working for something called Future Lab, we were invited by the UK government to do a really big foresight program for them, looking to 2035 and beyond to think about what the future of education was going to be. The reality is, once we started doing that, is that we realised you can't do that sort of thinking without reflecting quite carefully on how we think about futures. And then also the fact that the technological is clearly not the only thing that's shaping our future. You have to think about ecological change, demographic shifts, changes in the nature of work. So really, that introduced me to the wider field of futures thinking. And it's what I've been working on ever since, really, since the late 2000s. So I've been thinking in particular on this question of how we get better at reflecting upon our ideas of the future and the way in which those ideas of the future shape our thinking in the present. And I've also been thinking about how do we deal with the implications of certain particular futures? And so my other key area of focus the last 10 years or so has been really around this question of climate change and its implications for education. So how does this, what does it mean to be living and educating in a warming world? Mm. So those really are the two kind of key areas of my work for the last 10 years, this question of how do we anticipate? What does it mean to think about the future? And then also, how do we think about climate change? And one big area of my work has been in Sweden. I was invited to Uppsala University in 2018 to work with them around climate change leadership. So I've been working across the UK and Sweden ever since on those those two issues.
1: Wow. This is really something I need to read up on your work. I think I need to read your book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, your book um, on, um, well, I- yeah, Learning's Futures. So...
0: Yeah, yeah. it's quite funny that book, I was asked to do a second issue recent, recently and it's really it's difficult to do a second edition of a book that's about the future. And when I looked at it, actually most of the things that I was saying and writing in 2011 are still pretty relevant. So, uh, yeah, I've, I've decided not to do a second edition of that um, yeah. and to encourage people to still read it.
1: <laughs> yeah, and use it to prompt their imagination about what the future might be and, and how best to tackle the, the issues that we face. absolutely something else i need to look at educated optimism so i'll link to all of this in the podcast episode description so that our listeners can access them easily thanks how would you describe your work as informing the future of education
0: this is a tricky one because obviously it's a question about how do we affect change in the education system, which lots of people have thought about. It's an incredibly complicated question and there's there's many different ways of approaching it. What I've done over the last 20 years is work a lot with schools and universities around futures thinking. So, for example, during the pandemic, I was working with the university in New Zealand thinking about how they might reshape their thinking about what a university is in conditions where people can't move, perhaps quite as much more recently i've been working with dubai which is an interesting place to partner with looking at the development of a school of the future working with a great team from the uk on that But I've also been working with networks like the Schools of Tomorrow, but probably the most important work I've been doing on informing the future of education, really, is that I've spent the last few years working with UNESCO on their major Futures of Education Commission. And I've been working with them as a core member of the writing team. And I think the UNESCO Futures of Education Commission is a really critical piece of work. It's not a perfect piece of work, obviously, because you need to negotiate between lots of different people. So, you know, maybe there are things that you'd add in or or change. But I think it's a really important piece of work, because really what I'm proud of in what we managed to achieve there was that it's built in an awareness of Not only a kind of technological vision of the future, but also the issues around sustainability, around demographic change, around a really clear statement of the risks and challenges that the planet is facing at the moment and the the people on the planet. It built in a real commitment to recognising that there's not one way of thinking about the future, but that there are ideas and expertise from all around the world that we have to draw upon. So it shouldn't just be the West and Paris, if you like, putting these ideas out into the world, but that futures and futures making is a democratic practice. It's a participatory practice and we need to involve loads of people in it. So really, that's probably where my work Apart from, obviously, my ongoing teaching, which I think is hugely important and I love very much. <laughs> Absolutely,
1: um, yeah, because that's the next generation of educators as well. and exactly. Yeah, I think that's important. Yeah. yeah,
0: So, yeah, those are some of the things that, uh, that I've been doing. So, yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, wow. Are there any concrete examples or artefacts that you can point to us that help to raise important questions or might contribute to our thoughts and actions regarding education
0: futures? Responding to this question is quite a tricky one, because one of the key practices, I think, if you're going to think critically about futures, is to read really widely and to become aware of the information bubbles that you're stuck in. So. One of the biggest dangers in education futures work is that people just hang out with people that they already agree with. So, you know, the ed tech specialists hang out with the technologists and they can see all the technological futures that might be emerging. The climate and sustainability educators will be, you know, sharing news about what's going on there and with biodiversity crisis. Those people that are worried about skills and employment will be thinking about changing work and labour market. And the problem is, is that if we just sit in those bubbles, we don't see much bigger pictures and also we don't see how things interact. And so when we think about concrete materials, artefacts or media that can help us thinking, I'd say, you know, pick up a journal or a newspaper or a magazine that you would never normally read, connect with people whose ideas you don't agree with (laughs) and start trying to see, well, what might that? What might the implications of that be for education, for for what it is that people need to know, for the way, changing ways in which um, education practice might evolve? So that'd be my first response to that. I can share a few books, however, that in the last few years, I think have really changed my thinking, that I think are really powerful and important uh, for thinking about educational change, but also the sorts of futures that we might be inhabiting.
1: Yes, please do. Yeah.
0: Okay, so so the first of these would be a, a brilliant philosopher of communication, Lisbeth Lipari, who's written a wonderful book called Listening, Thinking and Being. And it's really changed how I think about listening. And it feels to me quite often in the education field, there's a lot of talking and there's not enough attention to listening and listening as a practice. So that would be a first one. A second one from a completely different angle is a great book that I keep giving to people at the moment, which is particularly important in the UK, but I think has implications internationally. And it's Nick Haynes' book called The Book of Trespass, which is about the history of land and access to land. And again, one of the reasons I think this is important for education is we tend to think of ourselves, education is over committed to the mind and less attentive to the body and to land and to our place in it. And this book really talks about what does it mean that so many of us are disconnected from land, have very little access to it, that we've allowed large corporations to take over our land and access. And I think it raises all sorts of questions that are worth thinking about. Another fab book that I love is N.K. Jemisin. So she's a science fiction writer. And I always think when we're thinking about futures, science fiction is a fabulous place to have a look. And she's written a fantastic book called How Long Till Black Futures Month, as opposed to Black History Month, which is a series of fantastic short stories uh, that is really, really worth connecting with. Um, that, oh,
1: that was sorry, my that's doll. very
0: strange. OK. <laughs> Hello, <Dad>. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs>
1: Oh no!
0: <laughs> is he, yeah. is he yeah. very happy? That's good. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, but anyway, so just what's his name? What's your dog's name?
1: Oh, Serby. He he must want to actually read that book. He wants yeah. to join it.
0: That's <laughs> yeah, what yeah, yeah. That's what it is. So I, yeah. So well, maybe reading this book to him will keep him happy. It's a yeah. it's a stunning book. But the other really critical thing about N.K. Jemisin's work is it brings in Afrofuturism, and I think the mm. this is a huge and important shift in our thinking about futures. Is Afrofuturist work deals with pasts as well as futures. It mm. deals with colonial history in a way that a huge amount of science fiction doesn't. It has really strong feminist writers and women's voices in thinking about imagining futures. So for all of those reasons, I think starting with Afrofuturism is a really great idea. And then the final book I really love is is one published by Karen O'Brien, who is a climate scientist and geographer and she's very closely connected with all of the work on addressing international biodiversity issues and she's written a wonderful book called you matter more than you think which is about quantum social theory and she's she's bringing quantum science quantum physics into thinking about social theory cool. and really what this does yeah it's really cool it's great stuff but the critical importance of that is that when people think about futures, they can be massively overwhelmed by them. And there's this real sense, well, how do I make a change? What can I achieve? And what her work does is it really helps us to think about the real power of unintended consequences. It helps us think about tipping points and the way in which we can have social tipping points, and it helps us think about the the huge potential importance of just one conversation. And, and that to me is really helpful, and I, I use it a lot when I teach with with my students around education and climate change mm. uh, because the question of the nature of agency that we have in these environments is a uh, is, is a really challenging one so I find that, that one useful so there you go there are a few suggestions I hope for good fantastic reason.
1: oh I, I wish I could do more with every day <laughs> I, <laughs> I want to
0: read all those books they, they sound great yeah <laughs> Most of them can be read of an evening for, for fun, actually. So oh, I'm not a yeah, big... Yeah. I personally, you know, I may be an academic, but I, I love reading great writing rather than academic papers all the time.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I need to get back into reading, actually, because I do a lot of thinking, though, and I have vivid imagination, so I dream up science fiction futures and things in my head. But I think it'd be fun to, to read. Yeah, definitely.
0: Well, <laughs> I mean, actually, I'm picking up on that. One of the papers that I wrote a few years ago that got a lot of interest was a a paper called Storytelling in Troubled Times. And one of my key arguments in that is that we also need to be supporting students and ourselves to do our own creative writing and to do our own imagining of the futures that we want to see. Mm. So, and I always think about Audre Lorde's quote. So she says, poetry is not a luxury. She talks about poetry as the skeleton architecture of our lives. So if we give ourselves permission to write poems or write stories or write any sort of creative writing, particularly about futures, it allows us to tap into our imagination of the worlds that might be and what we want them to be. And that's that's a really critical first step in all of this. It's not just about imagining what the future is going to be, but really tapping into and understanding what is the future that we collectively want to make. And that's an essential first step.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. That's where I see connections with your interests and mine with my mm-hmm. PhD topic, which is building on relational higher education, the notion of relational higher ed- education, and shifting the narrative of employability from a focus on individuals to a focus on contributing towards others and to mm. helping students to see that they, you know, that. The impact that they have on other things in employment and in their lives, and also yeah. and also the impact of those things on them. And it's not just humans; it's it's the environment and the materials that we use and and everything. So so yeah, there's heaps of things I need to that I can definitely look into your research on. And um, yeah, yeah, I need to have a quick not a quick a, a really deep dive <laughs> into your into your research. I think because it's very connected to mine.
0: Yeah, uh, the point that you're making there, I think, is really really. Critical, so this it sounds to me that you're what you're working on, which to me is one of the most important questions in education at the moment, which is how can we shift away from an idea of education as being the education of the individual alone towards a recognition that we're educating if you like, the connected human, the interdependent human, the person that is connected with other people, other materials, other beings on the planet. I mean that's that's a big part of the UNESCO Futures of Education Commission. Actually, it was an important piece of it to suggest that we reframe our idea of the individual at the heart of education. I did a little background paper for them on this, but there's a lot of people working in this area. Mm, Um, Yeah,
1: and that's so so, exciting because I think if we can shift the narrative away from just the individual, then that helps mm -hmm. broaden people's minds to think beyond themselves. We're working towards resolving a lot of the issues just. Inherently in in that change in that transformation, so hopefully everybody's work together will will lead to, you know, the change to the way that we just approach life. Really, yeah,
0: Yeah. exactly. I think that relational ontology—that sense of the reality of the world—is one that is relational. Is is if I were to put money on something right now, that to me is the shift that we are going to see over the next hundred or so years. Mm. I mean, it is that. A fundamental long durée, as we say, <laughs> um, yeah. you know, fundamental long durée civilizational shift. And actually, I mean, if you look at people like Vanessa Andriotti, um, Sarah Amsler, and others, they're talking, I mean, they're making the very clear point that actually this highly individualized, atomistic cost benefit analysis, homo economicus, on which we've based education, is an aberration. It's yeah. a temporary thing. And I think we're going to rediscover and remember our interconnectedness. Yeah. Nice. I
1: hope so. We did see (laughs) some of that when COVID hit. I think people started to realise the importance of connections. And we're in danger of losing that insight again. Um, But hopefully (laughs) all the work that people are doing will end up helping people to realise these things. Yeah.
0: Absolutely. And I mean, I think, you know, again, that's the reason that that we think about futures isn't to predict the future because you can't. The future doesn't exist. It's not predictable, either good futures or bad ones. But the reason we think about it is to think about what can we see in the present? What possibilities do we see here? And whenever I look at futures, whichever futures I look at, if I think about their implications for the present, there is... There is there is no downside, if you like, in the long term futures of thinking about ourselves as related, as connected, as part of something bigger than ourselves. I don't want to lose the individual, but if we see ourselves in relationship, whichever futures we see playing out and they, they could be highly diverse, you know, they can they can flip in an instant to something unexpected. My job has got a lot easier since the pandemic, actually, (laughs) because a few years ago, you'd say, you know what, radical shifts can happen. And everybody would be like, oh, no, but, you know, I've done my sociological work. I can talk to you about (laughs) ongoing structural inequalities. And this is going to stay exactly like this forever and ever and ever. And and the advantage of a pandemic is it does it does fuel the imagination, even though it's got a huge human cost. So it'd be great to use our imagination without actually having to have. That cost.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I agree about the timing. For my PhD I was like, this is really helpful because I can use the pandemic, I can bounce (laughs) off that problem that we're trying to face and solve and and climate change issues that have become more, you know, in everybody's mind. Yeah. So yeah, it's just been good timing I think for me as well. So (laughs) I'm Mm -hmm. thankful for that, but not I definitely not would rather not have the pandemic, of course, but Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes these things have to happen to get humans to realise
0: you know. I think the other critical issue, though, is that we need a story of the beauty of humans as well. Mm. So we, we, we have to be super careful that we don't end up just with a story where we say, you know, humans are a disaster, because actually, we've got responsibility, we've got creativity, we've got mm. relationships, and there are many examples of where humans have lived well in relation to their communities and to land people have huge strengths. So mm. I think one of those one of the critical stories we need to think about is how we tell the story of humans as as having real qualities, power, love, capabilities. It's we're not just a problem. We yeah, also have <laughs> yeah. something to offer.
1: I think we've just mm. got a bit lo- lost along the way over time. Like in the very beginning of humans we were we were connected so I think that we've just got distracted and lost and we're Mm. you know things have become more competitive and we created that Mm. but it's not really what makes us happy and what we need in the end um so sometimes Mm. maybe getting back to basics is is a good thing as well
0: oh yeah uh, yes although the basics are always going to change because times are different Um, that's true so and we have to be super, really careful like which basics do we want to go back to so mm. i mean we're always going to keep moving forward because some of the basics are gender inequalities <laughs> some that's of the basics that's actually are, true you know, so <laughs> so, so, yeah. so it's it's an it's that really careful balance about how change happens and and what stories we're telling ourselves about that mm. actually yes
1: anyway um <laughs> Okay, so what would you envisage or create for Education Futures if you had endless power and why?
0: Hmm, that's a lovely question. Mm-hmm. I'd like to bring in a curriculum for teaching time. Oh, so wow. we don't teach time in our schools. Mm-hmm. This is what I'm obsessed with at the moment, what I'm working on, what I'm writing on. How we live in time is what it means to be human, okay? So much of, of what we are is that awareness that our time is is finite or infinite, if you take a a religious perspective, but in our current form, it's limited. But the way in which we think about time, I mean, it it ties to the conversation we've just had. So when do we bring in the past? When do we bring in the future? When do we think about rhythms? How do we pay attention to the rhythms that are shaping in our lives, that are shaping our lives? Inequalities are absolutely central. Time shapes inequalities. So. You know, as some people move fast, they create other people responsibility for other people to move slowly and vice versa. If we think about climate change, particularly, which is obviously what's been on my mind, the way we think about time is absolutely critical there. So you have got the sort of global north talking about a coming apocalypse where something disastrous is about to happen to their lives. But you will also see other people particularly in post-colonial and decolonial societies saying, actually, you know what, the catastrophe already happened to us, we've already had an apocalypse. So the Mm. question about how we think about time is central to so many aspects of our lives. It's central to our sense of who we are. It's got an existential issue. It's central to how we coordinate our relationships with each other. It's central to the stories we tell and what we see as normal and yet we don't teach it. We teach kids to read the hands on a clock. We teach tiny bits of time across the whole curriculum, but they never add up to anything. And at the same time, we put kids in schools that are governed by a bell that tells them that time is a threat, That tells them that they have to get things done within a certain period, according to a clock, as opposed to recognizing that people work in different paces in different ways. So for me, I think bringing in a curriculum for thinking about time and for thinking critically about it would a huge amount of things would flow out of that. I think we'd get an education that was reflexive about time, recognizing that people develop in different ways at different paces, and we we wouldn't have to you know, we could teach about futures as well as histories. Yeah. We could think about how we design futures. We can think about how we organize ourselves as societies. You know, what's the nature of the rhythms that we're working to? And we can think about what it means ourselves as individuals to live in time and to confront the reality of mortality, which is one of the things that we shy away from hugely. But it's, it is mm. the, the critical condition of human life. Yeah. So that's what I'd like to do. <laughs>
1: I like that. I really like the notion of rhythms, actually. That's, that's mm. really interesting to me. And also time. I need to look into that as well. Have you got any papers yeah. that you've published about this?
0: Well, I'm, I'm just writing what is turning into a bit of a magnum opus at the moment, a paper on educating the temporal imagination, which should be finished in a couple of weeks, which I'll be putting out there soon, I hope. So, awesome. yeah, that's what I'm working on. But I should do a shout out for Michelle al Hadaf Jones, who's written a lovely book called Time and the Rhythms of Emancipatory Education, which is in adult education. His work is, is really fascinating. And then the journal Time and Society, We are pulling together a special issue on time and teaching critical time studies in that journal as well. So that's something worth having a look at. Oh, definitely
1: put an eye out for that, absolutely. (laughs) What small steps do you think we should take now to transform education futures?
0: Very simply, some of the things that we've talked about, just simply paying attention to how and when we bring the idea of the future into the present, asking ourselves Is the future the critical issue here or is the present the critical issue? So for me, too often, educational futures work is about an escape from the present. It's about a shift into, oh, you know, what about this amazing new technology that could make huge change? Whereas actually what we need to be thinking about is the fact that, you know, there are kids in schools in the UK, probably in Australia around the world, you know, who don't have beds to sleep in, who don't have food on their table. You know, there are there are present issues that we have to deal with at the same time as we keep our imagination open. So my sense would be a really small step is just noticing, just notice when do I turn to the future? Do I turn to it as an escape or do I turn to it as a resource for thinking about how we address the world that we're living in right now? So it is that self-reflection, I think. Critical, daily self-reflection. When are we bringing in the past? When are we bringing in the present? When are we bringing in the future? And what effect is it having on our thinking?
1: So we really need critical reflection and the teaching of time as well together.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> to wrap up, what is your final Education Futures message that you'd like to share with our listeners today?
0: I would say... Whose ideas of the future have you inherited? And whose ideas of the future are you not paying attention to and not listening to? And think carefully about those two things.
1: Yeah, I really like that. That's a good ending. Thank you very much, Kerry. um... (laughs)
0: Lovely to talk to you, Elizabeth.
1: Yeah. That's great. Have a great day.
0: And you. Take care.